Hello, Rachel here with a brief, I guess a public service announcement and errata to explain something about the episode that you are about to hear. And if you listen to all of these episodes where we discuss the play scene by scene, you're going to hear this message multiple times. And I apologize for that to. This important information is that there is a method that my co-hosts and I discuss called Original Practice Shakespeare that we have since learned was not original practice to Shakespeare at all. There is zero evidence to suggest that Shakespeare's actors did not rehearse their plays. There is zero evidence to suggest that they always faced the audience at all times. In fact, we know that to be patently false. So I go into this in more depth in the episode of the podcast under that title about what is original practice and Shakespeare and early modern rehearsal and play production methods. This is the air. This is the glorious sun. This pearl she gave me, I do feel it and see it. And though tis wonder that enwraps me thus, yet tis not madness. Where's Antonio, then? I could not find him at the elephant. Yet there he was, and there I found this credit, that he did range the town to seek me out. His counsel now might do me golden service. For though my soul disputes well with my sense, that this may be some error, but no madness. Yet doth this accident and flood of fortune so far exceed all instance, all discourse, that I am ready to distrust mine eyes and wrangle with my reason that persuades me to any other trust but that I am mad. Or else the lady's mad. Yet if it were so, she cannot sway her house, command her followers, take and give back affairs and their dispatch with such a smooth, discreet, and stable bearing, as I perceive she does, there's something in it that is deceivable. But here the lady comes. Blame not this haste of mine. If you mean well, now go with me and with this holy man into the chantry by. There, before him, and underneath that consecrated roof, fight me the full assurance of your faith that my most jealous and too doubtful soul may live at peace. He shall conceal it, whilst you are willing it shall come to note, what time we will our celebration keep, according to my birth. What do you say? I'll follow this good man and go with you, and, having sworn truth, ever will be true. (laughs) Then lead the way, good father, and heaven so shine that they may fairly note this act of mine. Alright, so we just finished listening to Act 4, Scene 3, and I kind of love this scene. It's just I love so short and sweet. Mm-hmm. What did, there's, in a way, there's so many directions you can go with this because it's so encapsulated, it's so focused. So I'll, I'll do the summary real quick. Basically, uh, Sebastian wanders on and starts talking about Olivia and going, okay, the sun is shining. 
Uh, she gave me this pearl. I can touch it. I can feel it. She seemed to ask me this crazy thing, but how could she be crazy if she's so good at running her household and her region? And then is oh here she comes and she shows up and says i've got a priest let's go get married right now yeah. great gag great gag moment yep put her and he on goes uh, okay <laughs> 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 and off they go so what are some things that you like to do in the scene or what are some experiences you had while doing this play that that you enjoyed for this scene in a lot of ways i think this is the first chance the audience gets to see Sebastian as a little, even though he is taking it, taking advantage of the moment isn't the best phrase, but you know, I mean, we've always seen Sebastian up until this point with his relationship with Antonio, mm -hmm. um, which is very much, uh, uh, he's being served by Antonio in many mm -hmm. different ways, depending on how far you want to take that. Sure. Um, and so this is the first time we see him sort of at a loss. Um, I mean, he is, if there was ever a child born under a lucky star, this is the one. I mean, <laughs> right? Totally. <laughs> you know, he's, he just, he just, gets it all. <laughs> he just inspires devotion and, right? you Mind. know, like blind loyalty regardless although you know i mean I, you know and my my running joke um when is always that you know olivia has gotten the best of both worlds in the end because she gets mm -hmm. sebastian's body and viola's brain mm -hmm. um you know and you know sebastian's a bit of a himbo and <laughs> <Yeah>. um <laughs> <laughs> you just know through like just yeah just, you know, uh, just things yeah. keep happening bro yeah you know, well, okay. gosh, sure i'll take that and... sure nice rich lady just invited me into her house and gave <laughs> all right, all right anything all right. i wanted and now she wants to get married yeah, all right nice sure. rock. this guy right. wants to buy me some clothes and do the... right right yeah. right this, this guy gave me his money <laughs> and followed That's me hard. to a, followed me to a city where somebody wants to kill him <laughs> And told me to go pick out something pretty. And now look, she's giving me pretty things. So everything's coming up, Sebastian. Hundred uh, <laughs> percent. And so you, of course, have to cast the person in your company that is the most like that person. So you, you know, uh, I know for me, it's you know, you always just that devastating smile, young guy that uh, has yeah. no no idea yeah. how lucky he is. Yeah, has to absolutely be charming because there has to be enough of viola about him that olivia doesn't see the difference and even though she's blinded by the fact that all of a sudden cesario is is completely willing to to be to return her affection um you know to the point where she doesn't stop and go wait a second <laughs> You know, 20 minutes ago, you wanted nothing yeah. to do with me. Well, like, she's hearing right what she, she, Stay there. Yeah. she's hearing yeah. what yeah. she wants to hear. Yeah, yeah. She definitely strikes uh... while the iron is hot. Um, you know, yeah. so so he's not his charm. There must be something open enough about his charm that allows him to to be seem appealing. Mm hmm. Um, so I think, yeah, you need somebody who can sort of 
give that whole monologue directly to the audience like look at this (laughs) he really um gets a friend in the audience here yes Mm -hmm. we've seen him with antonio before but the audience kind of goes through this wonder of of this with him and it's one of my absolute favorite moments in the play too because it really is a that old school power of love kind of thing, you know? And mm-hmm. if, if you just really go for, for it and all of its its silliness and and and, and sudden manic devotion and the mm-hmm. the you know curiosity. Uh and it's especially coming from such a dark moment before, you know, mm-hmm. with uh, mm-hmm. with mm-hmm. the Utopus and, and Malvolio. It's mm-hmm. um it's such a just a breath of air. I usually move the setting to the coast. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have, or I have them walking out of the house, him walking out of the house, mm-hmm. maybe not totally closed. Maybe there's a little something, <laughs> and, you know, and just walking out sort of almost that post bliss kind mm-hmm. of uh, thing, but really that, you know, uh, ha- you know, hand in hair, tying the towel around himself, breathing the air. Oh my God, what's happening yeah. to me? <laughs> yeah. You know, that whole yeah, kind yeah. of like, thing that happens where you look yourself in the mirror and you're you're just like I can't believe we're doing this, man. I can't mm-hmm. believe this is happening to us. And uh, it really, you know, it, it hits you back, back in those like possibility of love and how the world can <laughs> suddenly and irrevocably <laughs> that word. Yep. <laughs> irrevocably. Uh, Very good. Very good. <laughs> uh, change on a dime, and this is a guy mm-hmm. that. You know, shipwreck, doesn't have anything, dead mm-hmm. sister, uh, you know, mm-hmm. all of these things going on. And mm-hmm. but suddenly you can be hit by a Cupid's arrow and it's it, you never know when, you never know where, and everything can be boom, lost to that, just 100 percent You you dive in. I mean, he does he does pop up with some concern about Antonio there, mm-hmm. but uh I, I think it's just such a charming, you know, it's so it's it's like you know ariel in the in the disney movies with mm-hmm. the, you know the blinking and this you know where any of the it's it's that young mm-hmm. love mm-hmm. thing and I, I just think it's so powerful it's such a wonderful breath and such a wonderful moment before we get into resolving you know right, kind of, <laughs> right. tying everything up yeah. do you and, two uh believe in love at first sight <laughs> no i believe in infatuation at first sight <laughs> I believe in lost at first sight. <laughs> right? Yeah, totally. Um, I, I, I'd second that. Um, and also, you know, the love, the love thing is um, is so infinite and and you know varied and uh, mm. and you know part isn't part of love that it's changing and. Mm-hmm. I I think and, so, and yeah, I'm going to say yeah, that I so do I do hundred percent mm. believe in love at first sight because. Uh, there's no question that I fell in love with my husband just like the moment I laid eyes on him. And Aww. it's still the same. I still feel that same kind of just <laughs> excitement, like every time he walks in the room. So if it's infatuation and lust, which I happen to enjoy both very much, but <laughs> even if it was just that, then it's lasted over 20 years. So great man i think it Mm. i think it can happen that doesn't mean that you don't go through a lot of heartache Mm. like we all get to experience that full we're lucky that kind of full spectrum of love and uh you know makes us grow as people but like here's sebastian 
<laughs> Everybody wants them. <laughs> There's a star that danced and a nerd that he was born. Mm-hmm. So what were you going to say, Bridget? Do, do you remember? Uh, I was going to this had never occurred to me until just now listening to John, but this is the first happy experience of love we have in this play. Mm. Everybody else's love is so tormented. Complicated. Yeah. We're, so you're right. Complicated. We're so hungry. I guess I don't, it depends on how Toby and Mariah play it. Yeah, but that one's not, it's not as explicitly love almost. It almost feels like I'm saying it depends how they play. Right. But I'm, what I'm saying is, what I'm saying is just based on the words in the text. This is the right. first time we see love that is the also he's he's, he's fifteen minutes at midnight and complicated right eight. right yeah you got a, you got a window and we don't get to see Toby and Mariah have a love scene together right. we right. don't get this lovely monologue from either of them extolling the virtues well, of the other one at right. except for Toby <laughs> what's that. <laughs> Shakespeare being kind to us. Oh, <laughs> agreed. A All lot that of your Tobys said. are probably not oh. <laughs> speaking as a Toby. <laughs> I would love to hear your Toby's love monologue, John. There you go. There you go. <laughs> well, I'm, first we got uh, uh, a Tuesday. Uh, <laughs> I was driving my horse through the Oh, see, I want to hear from Mariah saying why. You know, mm, what does yeah. she see in him? Because that's always a question that we have. Mm-hmm. You know, we're wondering what what's up with that. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's a it's a sweet scene that way. It feels at the same time both complicated and not complicated. It's like just this pure expression of what a romantic comedy is, right? Mm-hmm. Two people meet, they're confused about who they are, they don't care, <laughs> they get married, the end. That's, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, that's, it's like the shortest romantic comedy in history. <laughs> and he has, he has the wherewithal in there. He's, he's, he, he does a couple, you know, he has the moment about Antonio mm-hmm. and, you know, that his counsel now could do me good service. He's wondering, you know, where he's at and all that, mm-hmm. but he, it then goes into a bit, spends a good chunk of thinking about the possibility of this being false or mm-hmm. that it's not really happening or that he's insane. Mm-hmm. And we, we, get the idea from him that the thing that or she's insane Mm -hmm. um, and the thing that pulls him into it is her is the purity of her uh, uh, intentions and the purity of her expression in it Mm -hmm. and Mm -hmm. although he says there's something in it that's deceivable which you know kind of circumstantially he is every bit is swept here Mm -hmm. as she is you know Mm -hmm. and so that is just a lovely thing you know i mean it's kind of sealed in there with with the priest in there um who i like to dress up you know i mean you can, you can get um i don't know if festy could run all the way over but you, you know you get uh in time to get that done but uh, but um you get you know so one of the others dressed up in in uh, some priest gear and mm-hmm. um it's it's just a, a beautiful kind of a, a gorgeous and again blue lagoon that's what i was i was coming out with that for me this is you know uh, the water, the motif. This is the the, the cover of the, the romance novel here. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's also, it allows us to circle back to the more put together Olivia. Because the last time we see her with Cesario, she's all but fastened herself around his leg. 
mm-hmm. you know, begging him to stay. Uh, so it's it gives it gives her an opportunity to start turning back toward the 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 paragon of virtue, the paragon of leadership that that she's meant to be perceived as by the community. Um, you know, so that even in the midst of all of this this excitement and lust over the fact that that he's finally agreed to love her back, she has the sense to get the priest and make it legal and get it done. Um, you know, she's still excited and giddy, but she's also, you know, she's got a list. She's yeah, she is becoming uh, yeah. Mm-hmm. She's exactly. she definitely is showing her executive function there. She. <laughs> she is a leader and mm-hmm. uh you know she's she's got that earlier in the podcast i talked about sebastian and the figure of sebastian the first the king of portugal in history and i was a little fuzzy on the details because it had been a while since i read the book and i found it again the book is called the sultan and the queen by jerry broughton and It's about Queen Elizabeth negotiating with the Ottoman Empire for assorted uh, commercial interests and uh, mutual military aid. It's well worth a read. And one of the things that I, I found really helpful about it is that it makes really clear what the English attitude was towards the Muslim world. And it was complicated, as you can imagine. There was far more to it than we're usually led to believe reading histories of the time period. It, it was a big part of their life. And all of those fancy embroideries and the sugar and all of that came out of that alliance with many of these Islamic countries. I'm going to read a little passage from this. In the spring of 1578, and this is after many negotiations, um, the English were ready to do business with the Ottomans. Then in July, news from Morocco sent shockwaves throughout Europe and the Mediterranean. And Mm -hmm. basically what had happened is that the King of Portugal, King Sebastian, the last of his line, uh, had not had any children yet and was known to be kind of impulsive and flighty, but really good-hearted, decided to go attack some of these Islamic countries. And what happened then was that he and two other kings, it's called the Battle of the Three Kings, all met on this one battlefield, and they all died. And so it ended up that nobody held that territory. And then... (laughs) (laughs) You know, it continued to be this like weird thing for a while. But that's all really fascinating people. And I recommend a deep dive on that. But it shocked, literally did shock the rest of the world, because that's not how it's supposed to go. And at that time, every time a head of state died, that meant all sorts of ramifications for all sorts of people. All kinds of alliances got put into question. Goods and services that they were used to getting through trade could be at risk. New wars could pop up. The country could dissolve entirely. It could just cease to be a country as internal factions warred against each other to for control. 
And that's usually what happened. So then when you add that on top of all these religious divisions that keep multiplying like a dividing cell, it's <laughs> continually. And so a lot of the times if there's a change in rulership, that means a change in the state religion. And then all the alliances shift all around the world. When England went from Catholic to Protestant to, to Catholic to Protestant, then that immediately changed their relationship with Spain and with the lowlands and Huguenots. Huguenots? I, I could say Huguenots and just know I'm doing it wrong. <laughs> you can know if you want to get fancy. Thank you. Thank you. You're I welcome. Do. You know I do. So <laughs> to have suddenly three important regions just thrown into chaos was really shocking. And there's this sort of little pause at the time as people kind of went, oh, we don't, we don't have any guides for this situation. Nobody even knew what to do, like who to help, because nobody knew how things were going to fall out. So this happened in 1578. And Shakespeare is writing Twelfth Night much later, almost what, 22 years later, like in the early 1600s. So we can think of that kind of political experience as something that has happened to us 20 years ago, but is still reverberating now, like 9-11. We're still very much feeling the effects of that, interpreting it, trying to understand it. And so the English people would have had that Sebastian still very much in their minds. Uh, Sebastian was rumored to be, certainly liked his male friends very much and did not get married, was not pledged to anyone, didn't have any children. And so the name Sebastian in early modern plays often gets used for a well-meaning, sexually ambiguous, very attractive young man who can get others to do what he wants impulsively and sometimes with very disastrous results for, for them, mm. as happens to Antonio in this play. Basically, what happens to Antonio is what happened to Sebastian's men. They said, we love you. You're the king of Portugal. You're sent from God. We'll follow you anywhere. We love you. Here's our money. Oh, well, we really shouldn't go there because they want to kill us, uh, but we will do it for your sake. And then they followed him there <laughs> and they ended up in prison and basically chattel at that point if they survived. So seeing that political drama played out so clearly in Twelfth Night, I think is just so fun. Hmm. It's um, something we might see in like Saturday Night Live or some other comedy where there's this sort of spoof of an event. And, you know, if you know, you know, and we're all supposed to get it. But hmm. 400 plus years later, <laughs> we don't remember. <laughs> <laughs> we don't know, but it goes a long ways to sort of, I feel like Twelfth Night 
gives that archetype of Sebastian the happy ending that everybody really wished he had had. Everybody really wishes that instead of waging war against the Moors, that he had stumbled into some attractive woman who fell in love with him and <laughs> thought he was somebody else and they married and lived happily ever after. So hmm. um, there is a website that lists all the character names of early modern plays, not just Shakespeare. And when you see that and you see, oh, Sebastian in this play was this kind of character in that kind of character in that play and you start to see these sort of consistent things and then because I was happening to read this book at the same time I was looking at that uh, website um, it all kind of clicked together and then I started looking up all the other characters to see if they had historical <laughs> precedent but Sebastian is the one that that I remember. And once I get the website up and running, I promise you I will have a link to that wonderful website. Um, and I will send you two links in chat. Mm -hmm. uh, okay. Oh, there's my dog. Hello, puppy. Hi. Baby. Hi. Hey, shh. Quiet. Okay. So I, I think that pretty much covers this scene. There's like I said, it's short and sweet. Hmm. Um, another book that I was reading this book was uh, Alison Weir's Elizabeth the First book, and I'm enjoying it very much. And I realized that I that I had not really read about Queen Elizabeth since I was like 12 years old, and so my impressions of her life and her relationships is very different now. <laughs> <laughs> that I'm pushing 60. <laughs> and it it blew my mind, like all these relationships that I didn't think anything about, particularly like they just sort of went past me. I was like, whoa, that is really shocking. Or, oh, that's really intense. Or, oh, my gosh, no wonder the English people were alarmed. And I got just so interested in following, kind of doing a deep dive on this subject that like has been part of my psyche you know since i was a very young girl and it's been really fun uh she's got a lot of boyfriends she's got a ton <laughs> of paramours and keeping all those apart has been a challenge in the past so i'm feeling better about understanding how that works now who you know who is sir robert dudley and man, that guy had staying power. I'll give him that. Um, <laughs> he stuck with her for a really long time. But reading about all this and then, you know, coming through her biography to the point where Twelfth Night is performed. And Alison Weir says, oh, and this is where they saw Twelfth Night. And it really gave me perspective on what was history for that court at mm. that point? And at this point in Elizabeth's reign, a lot of those people are dead. So I'm really changing my view about whether or not this is some sort of sticking political commentary. I feel like it's more a nostalgic 
look at the past hmm. that gives Elizabeth time to be in that world that she used to have when all her paramours and her most beloved counselors were alive before she'd had to execute her cousin, the Mary Queen of Scots, I mean, to a, a happier time. And dang, does that shift my <laughs> my whole focus on it? I mean, there's still a, a little bit of political commentary, but at this point, Elizabeth is long past ovulating. Mm. There's no chance of her marrying. There's no chance of her having children, certainly. And all of these dangers that Olivia faces are long in Elizabeth's past right now. Her current concerns are her mortality, um, the fact that the court around her that she relies on, they're all much younger than her, mm. and they have different tastes, they have different priorities. They don't respond to her like a sexual being in any practical mm -hmm. sense. And this brings all that back for her. And I'm I'm just really kind of touched by it for that reason. It feels to me like a very affectionate gesture on Shakespeare's part towards uh, an aging monarch past mm. her romantic glory days. Um, Especially in that it deals so much with the, the, the romantic, you know, um, mm -hmm. and which the, the popular, you know, ideas that it, it was for the Twelfth Night proper. It was the uh, patron asked for a holiday play, mm -hmm. uh, you know, to give, give us a festival uh, play, something to celebrate. I think there was, yeah, there was somebody visiting and it was Twelfth Night and Twelfth Night, very significant to that culture and certainly significant to Elizabeth. Those were, you know, Twelfth Night was the day when people would announce engagements uh, when they would give each other gifts, when she would knight people or give them land or titles. Well, the Twelfth Night was often no, like that. You know, for Elizabeth, there's to a, to a person, there's not a female in here that's not brilliant, virtuous, uh, guileless, uh, with the exception of cross-dressing. I mean, really, every single one of the females in this thing is, is a gift. Of a character, and, mm -hmm. and we are, are, you know, drug into the mire, and, uh, and and all of the gross parts of human existence with all of these mutants that come from the rest of the play. You know, your Tobys mm -hmm. and your Malvolios, and everyone mm -hmm. just with these mm -hmm. gross lusts and these other things. I mean, uh, you know, we begin with people willing to deny themselves everything for all time based on on losing a family member, and these very pure kind of virtuous things. And it's 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 different, I think especially in terms of how they deal with love. I mean, like, if you think of, like, even, you know, like, your most, I, I mean, you know, your Romeo and Juliet, your Troilus and Cressus, these things are just tinged with all of the problems of love, you know, infatuation, and impure physical, uh, you know, rape, uh, in the case, mm -hmm. possibly, of you know, with the Cressida thing, and, uh, I mean, just all of this, uh, uh, all of these other, other ideas, but you really get the sense here with the female in Twelfth Night and Olivia, um, and in this scene in particular, like that, that the expression of, of this, this, the, the power, the virtue, the real, like 
bright light, you know, true love mm -hmm. thing. It's not something that we're allowed. There's only a few moments in Shakespeare where we're really allowed sort of an, an equivocal uh, uh, to be to be fans of, of the of the character. There's always something mm -hmm. right. There's a, like mm -hmm. Hamlet, best character ever, you know. But Jesus Christ, he could have he could have saved everyone. He could have, you know what I mean? Like, oh, he's a villain. He is you know a villain, I mean? like, and no, you know, no one like, can tell me otherwise. Yeah, Hamlet exactly. Is Shakespeare's you know? biggest villain, as far as I'm concerned. Exactly. So you know, yeah. and uh, in this case, we've got Olivia and Viola uh, and and Mariah and these the sense of their duty, the sense of their relationships with other people, both mm -hmm. uh, alive and not, and the potential for true love, but only true love if it can be done truly. You know, and and without lying, and with, and it's really rare. You know, I mean, I, I got to go to like Henry V, maybe. You know, like, I, mm -hmm. and, and even that end scene with him and Catherine. You know, a little, uh, a little mm -hmm. nutty, but like Henry V on the battlefield. It's that level of virtue. You know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's that. It's that Christmas Day of of the love set, in my opinion. Here. You know, that's, <laughs> that's, that's what I've always loved about these guys here, these mm -hmm. ladies. Right? They they really uh, they really hit you. Well, and they do a really good job of showing all kinds of the different stages that a woman goes through. So it starts with Viola, the, the maiden, and very guileless, uh, very naive, but her whole future ahead of her and full of self-confidence that is wholly unearned. And so then she <laughs> has to scrabble to kind of be worthy of the goals that she set for herself. But at the same time, what else could she do? You know, she's in a tough situation. And then we've got kind of the more middle position where Olivia's in, where she's about to be married. And then we get to Mariah, which is kind of more traditionally the crone in terms of looking after people. And granted, there may be no merit <laughs> <laughs> to that framing. So uh, if you're listening and you're like, oh, she's wrong because blah, blah, I assure you that you are correct and I am wrong. But that's not the point. <laughs> the point is that uh, women in groups of threes are pervasive throughout ancient culture and continued right through Christian culture with the three Marys and continue to this day. And so whenever I see three women portrayed in a play, then I'm always you go, thinking about, well, babe. You know, what is this, what is this telling us? And when we look at like all three of them, then we see a whole person. If you mush them all together, mm. then you get Elizabeth. I see what you're getting at here, but I, I liken this more to like a, like the Hamlet big three thing, like where you had like, you know, your Fortinbras, your, your Laertes and Hamlet, you have three sons all mm -hmm. dealing with massive struggles you know, uh, uh, no father going through major life changes to say the very least together. For me, these three guests, I tend to not cast Mariah old. Um, I, I, well, and, I, and me, I want Toby's to be clear. a scoundrel and he's looking, he, you know, he can get that anyway. You know what I mean? Toby's No, uh, <laughs> no. I want to be clear that, that just because you are in the position of caring for others in a selfless way, mm. that you don't have to be old. No, but I mean, just in to terms be of in that, but imagery. to be in that situation. And oh, I so got you. Okay. when we when we look at what does the crone mean, um, because at, nobody's asking Mariah when she's going to produce an heir. So 
you know, whether that happens later or not, it, it's not a concern of Mariah's. And it is very much a concern of Olivia's. And so to me, that's kind of the dividing line there. And I certainly see where Shakespeare uses uh, trinities often. Mm. It's, um, it's a very dynamic form of relationship and it can bring in a lot of plot points. And I think you're absolutely right in that a lot of times when we see three males, we see it's the three brothers archetype mm. where they are all trying to prove themselves and they each have a strength that's also their fatal flaw. And, and how does that play out? Let's see what happens next from that. discussing about Olivia's age, either in the last session or a couple sessions back, and how old could Olivia be? And I was feeling, because at the time it would have been unusual for a woman of Olivia's status to not have married somebody by the time she's 25 or 26, or been really betrothed to somebody by then, that she probably couldn't be much past that in age. But now, having understood the play more as, you know, an homage to Elizabeth in her yeah. younger years, you know, because she was still doing all of the things in this play kind of took place more like when she was in her late 30s, early 40s. And so I think there's definitely a valid point to be made for making Olivia as old as you want her to be. I think that's completely fair. Rylance, Mark Rylance, uh, is was straight up. It was pretty much Elizabeth. How he, it was, uh, it was Elizabeth. It, and you, you are maintaining that you feel like it was an older Elizabeth. I, I don't see that. Um, Rylance just always reads a little old to me. Like his, that was my big problem. Oh, with, with Henry that that's true. So, that that just, I will agree yeah, with you. Yeah, yeah, I'll agree with you there. He's been forty-five since he was eighteen. Right, exactly. Yeah, exactly. Speaking as speaking as one of those guys myself, I always <laughs> was always the king. I get that. You know all that. I get that. <laughs> because, yeah, uncle. I've never been an ingenue. So. <laughs> oh, you get out of town. Seriously, I was never, ever, ever it. an ingenue. No, I, <laughs> I believe it. They're I, dumb. I, no, I never was either. It, it, you it, stop. No, it's not. It's not a thing to want to be, John. It's okay. Uh -uh. It's okay. I did. I did, uh, I did flirt around with uh, uh, playing a little Romeo when I was early. early. Nice. Aww. It was pretty fun, but I had much more fun later. It got to rumble with some, some Mercutio. Yeah. That's, that's where it's at. That's where that it's at, where it's for at, sure. Man. That yeah. is where it's at. Romeo's just getting yelled at all the time, and he's whining. And he's dumb. And he's Romeo's a big, dumb. fat dummy. He's a serial killer. And you're supposed to kiss the girl, and you haven't even really kissed a girl yet, so then it's 
really your stomach's like i don't think we're gonna make it okay that's another podcast (laughs) some things to work through (laughs) (laughs) but uh one of the other things just to go back to the age point with um, Mm -hmm. olivia is that the suitors are all so ancient i mean just i mean just ancient ancient get like aggie cheek you know often played as an old old dude that you've got that whole Mm. realm and and yet when you had toby as a as a young actor you found depths to that character that you didn't know were necessarily there and i think that like some of these characters they play into these archetypes like aggie cheek plays into that archetype of the foolish old man uh, so it's really easy for us to pigeonhole him into that role. But when you look at the people that those characters are based on, you know, Elizabeth knew them from when they were young men and until they were old men. And so mm. you can place those just like you can with Elizabeth kind of anywhere you want on that spectrum because they're these sort of ageless embodiments of these roles that they had to keep performing even though Mm. normally they would have aged out of them right normally you know malvolio would have been much too old to have designs on elizabeth so you can slide them around and here he is acting like a, a young kid enough that you can easily put a young person in Malvolio's role because how many officious young people have we known (laughs) (laughs) suddenly have authority that they've never had and just take it a little too far Uh, (laughs) that's a that's an ageless problem but spoken like a woman who raised teenagers yes (laughs) and who was a teenager let me tell you i i knew everything and what a Mm -hmm. wonderful time it was Mm -hmm. Um, but something that i want to talk about is mariah because anybody who would have been near elizabeth would have been of noble birth anyone who waited on her as a as a lady in waiting or as a gentlewoman would have been within a degree or two of being an heir to the throne themselves. And in fact, heirs to the throne, maybe farther down often would get brought into court just to kind of keep an eye on them. So I feel really strongly. And again, people can play this however they like, but I feel really strongly that Mariah is not necessarily is not lower class than Toby. What she is, is unmarried. She's a mature, unmarried woman. And that's enough in that society for her to just need to get married just for that sake. She doesn't have to be lower class to need Toby. She can just be a single woman stuck in some other woman's uh, court. You know, call it, I don't see Mariah needing Toby. I mean, pretty, I mean, I think she, she has needs, to decide that she, she likes needs Toby. somebody. She <laughs> needs somebody because that, that was the belief at the time. Now, obviously Elizabeth made a mockery of all that uh, because she ended up not marrying anybody. And that's part of the ongoing 
tensions in the play and in her reign. But I, I just think it's important to recognize that women in that culture had to get married and often had to put up with somebody several degrees below themselves in terms of status or breeding or charm, <laughs> uh, mm. just in order to have uh, a potential for their own home for their own children, for money to call their own that they could do something with. Once a woman got married, she had stuff of her own. She she owned things. Until she got married, you know, everything belonged to her parents. So if you wanted to basically be a grown-up and have your own space as a woman, you had to get married. And I feel like that creates just as much of a, an interesting question for us as to what is her relationship with Toby and why is she attracted to him? And there's lots of room to play in there. I feel like that gives us kind of more room to play and, and not less. And then uh, let's see, what was the other thing I found out? Oh, people which kind of realized cerebrally, but not completely, is that people were smoking a lot of tobacco back then. Everybody had a little clay pipe in their hand that they were puffing on all the time. And we don't see that in the movies, and I understand why. We don't see it in the paintings, and I understand why that is too. But any accurate depiction of the Elizabethan era should be full of clay pipes full of tobacco <laughs> well sweet and awesome. that's happening from now on well, <laughs> and of course they paid the price you know they got cancer and everything else that sugar they discovered during that era and they had the worst toothaches ever long before their dental technology knew what to do about it um and then that made people sometimes opium addicts to get away from the pain of that so you could put that in your pipe and smoke it too. So <laughs> picture a lot of Elizabethans walking around smoking tobacco and opium out of those little clay pipes. And last, but certainly not least, I learned that uh, women in Elizabethan England, especially in the court who were unmarried, walked around with their tits out all the time. <laughs> what? Yes. There's drawings, there's linotypes everywhere. And there is a a very clear description by a somewhat shocked French ambassador who came to see Elizabeth when she's middle-aged already. And he was shocked to see her robe undone all the way to her belly with everything exposed. And he describes her breasts as being slightly wrinkled, but lovely soft and white skin <laughs> he goes on and on about and is astonished how are you gonna do elizabeth like that for Jim <laughs> hey, and he talked about man. you know what he could see that wasn't covered by the large collar and so at the collar nice. they had the collar and they also had something called a partlet which i never quite understood <laughs> i kind of never understood what the point of a partlet was but a partlet is like a a small white linen, usually, or cotton garment that you just kind of put over your bodice and around your neck. 
And these were a separate garment. And I always wondered why would you need that? Why wouldn't you just have it be part of your chemise, your undergarment that went underneath? Well, it's because women walked around bare breasted. And, you know, we need to understand that the Elizabethans viewed nudity differently than we do. Uh, people often were breastfeeding infants, whether it was their own or not. That was a common sight. Farmers in the summertime would take their shirts off regardless of gender to work in the fields. And people had sex in public. They had sex all over the place. And when they weren't having sex in public, they were having sex in their bedrooms, which they shared with their entire household. People did those physical acts much more publicly than I think most of us would be comfortable doing so. And so just having your tits out was part of advertising that you were available. Now there's some pushback on this in the research and, and I understand that and everybody's entitled to an opinion. I did a, as it were, deep dive on this subject this week and mm. um, could find no good argument for why all these illustrations of women with their breasts exposed and, you know, the full gown, uh, the, the stays, the big farthingale, the big collar, and exposed nipples. Boom. <laughs> How do you like that, dear listener? Put that together in the head. <laughs> so uh, if you're going to do... Boobs, pipes, painted faces, <laughs> Twelfth Night. Twelfth Night. <laughs> <laughs> All right. It's a perfect Danger. ending. Boom. <laughs> <laughs>